Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I am your host, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Elevate Educate Rejuvenate. This week, this episode, I've got another great guest. For 17 years, he was an Emmy Award winning producer and senior manager at ESPN. He has created and produced content for shows such as Sports Center, Monday Night Football, Mike and Mike in the Morning, Sunday NFL Countdown, College Game Day, and the MLB All Star Game. Since 2017, he has stepped away from ESPN to pursue his passion in sports ministry. He is the host of the Sports Spectrum podcast, and he's the author of the new book, The Uniform of Leadership, Lessons on True Success from My ESPN Life. The book and the podcast are linked up here. Welcome to the podcast, Jason Romano. forward of the book, um, John Gordon, who we just had on the podcast recently as well. Um, he talks about your amazing servant leadership and how do you define and, and think about servant leadership yourself? Well, it's funny. The two words are, are sort of buzzwords that go together now when you're thinking about leadership, especially if you read John's books and he's a huge you know, influence for me uh, on my journey. But I think you can't be a great leader without being a servant or without serving. So that's to me what it is. It's, it's leadership is serving. It's serving others. Uh, it's putting others first. That's what wearing the uniform of leadership is. It's, it's the uniform that we sort of metaphorically wake up with every day to put on and we have to make a decision what we're going to do today. Are we going to play for the name on the front of the jersey or the name on the back? And the name on the front is in essence, if, when you think about a uniform, it's the team, it's others. The name on the back is our name. And who are we going to play for? And a lot of times we mix that up. And the idea of what I would say is the opposite of servant leadership, or if you want to say it, bad leadership, is when we put that uniform on backwards and we play for ourselves first. Uniform on backwards. I like that. (laughs) Get get inside out. Um, In the book, there's a a quote that stuck out to me, um, I think, through all of our journeys. um, It said, you are where you are for a reason. You are who you are for a reason. I love that idea. Can you talk a little bit about more of that? So we are where we are. I mean, now I'm going to instill my faith into this and uh, we won't get too crazy religious or super spiritual here, but my faith is, is everything for me. You know, I believe um, that I am here for a purpose, you know, and that's what it is. And that I'm created on purpose for a purpose. And, you know, that purpose really goes back to the the two commandments, if you will, that, that Jesus said, you know, when he was on this earth and he said, love God and love others as yourself, love your neighbor. And so that's the purpose. That's the whole idea of servant leadership. When we get back to your first question is it's putting others first. So it's loving God. Really. It's, it's the, I am third model that I put in my book, God first, others second and ourselves third. Now I'm not saying we completely neglect ourselves. That's not the case here. Sure. In fact, what Jesus said was love your neighbor as yourself. So he's not saying don't love yourself. He's just saying, make sure you put your neighbor and others in place. If you're loving yourself first and then neighbors, again, wearing the uniform backwards, I think it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a selfish kind of way of looking at things. And listen, we all struggle with that because sure. as T.O. once said, the great Terrell Owens, <laughs> 
I love me some me, and we do. We we love we love us. We love we love who we are. We we love everything about us, and and there's a selfish nature that we're sort of all born with. Um, but we were born for a purpose, and that purpose is to I believe love God, love others, and uh, on purpose is to live out that purpose in serving others. That's great. I love it. Um, there's also a, a Pete Carroll story you share. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to spoil too much of the book. This will be the last question cut on that. But uh, right. can you uh, talk a little bit about that experience and lesson learned? Yes. That? So at the time, uh, I was probably, let's see, this was 2010. So I was 10 years into my career at ESPN. And my, t- my job title at the time was, was talent producer. So I was a booker, a talent coordinator. I would help coordinate and book the guests that you would see on ESPN shows. Uh, and I worked on all the shows, the ones that you've watched, SportsCenter, Mike and Mike in the Morning, NFL Live, First Take, College Football Live, like all of those shows I had the privilege to work on and be a part of. And I would coordinate guests for these shows. And so uh, part of that was a thing we call the ESPN car wash, which has nothing to do with cars or water uh, or anything like that or soap. It's literally what we just called the day at ESPN when a guest would come and we would take them through show to show various interviews. And so Pete Carroll was there that day to do the ESPN car wash. He was promoting his new book that he had just written. And it was right in between when he left USC to go to Seattle. So he hadn't won a Super Bowl yet. So Pete Carroll is literally in between his jobs as USC's head coach, and he had all the success that he had at USC, and then leaving that job, which there was some controversy at that time. Now you kind of look back and you laugh because he's had so much success since. But he left that job in college to go to the NFL, back to the NFL, to be the Seattle Seahawks head coach. So he had written this book. I believe it was called Win Forever. And Pete is there sort of promoting the book and to go and do a bunch of interviews at ESPN. And I was assigned to sort of take Pete around and to schedule the shows that he was going to be appearing on. And that day happened to be the day, and I don't know exactly, July, July 8th maybe, somewhere around that time. You can look it up. Whatever the day that George Steinbrenner passed away was the day Pete Carroll was at ESPN, and I was there with him. Gotcha. Uh, and that's why I remember this, because Pete was there. He had a full slate of shows that he was going to be appearing on. And, uh, and they were really in the – in early to mid July, there's no other sports other than baseball really going on. So nothing's going to affect his day. He traveled all the way across the country to help promote this book and was on sort of a book tour. And he does Mike and Mike in the morning. And right as he is doing this interview with Mike and Mike, I'm in the back with the producers on the show and they just point, you know, at their computer screen. And I look and it says, George Steinbrenner has just passed away. So in my brain, I know, I said, oh, no, for two reasons. Oh, no, obviously, you're sad to see somebody famous like that pass away. But the other oh, no was my day just got crazy because I knew that with George Steinbrenner dying and the Yankees and how Sports Center and all these ESPN show worked, that that was going to be the topic and the, and, the, and the discussion all day long was George Steinbrenner. So Pete Carroll was at ESPN. He was kind of an aftermath now. And I remember – first take coming to me and saying, we can't have Pete on our show anymore. And I said, why? And he said, well, well, you know that George Steinberg died. I said, I know, but Pete's here. I was trying to go to bat for Pete. Sure, sure. And we worked it out. We had five, 10 minutes. We had Pete Carroll on. And I said, why don't you ask Pete Carroll about George Steinbrenner? 
maybe there's an opportunity there to, for him to talk about it and react. And, uh, and he did, and they did the interview, and it worked out fine. But pretty much three or four interviews after that were all canceled. And I felt terrible. I'm telling Pete, well, I'm so sorry that these interviews that you came here to do aren't going to happen now. Now, there were two or three that we were able to keep on the table, including College Football Live and I think NFL Live. But I was feeling terrible. Now, let me tell you what the lesson was here. Pete Carroll is a great leader. Obviously, most people would say that. But Pete Carroll, immediately when I told him I was sorry, he's like, don't worry about it. This happens. You can't predict George Steinbrenner's passing or breaking news. We'll go with the flow. Just tell me where we got to go. And the lesson was that Pete Carroll was a thermostat and not a thermometer. Yeah. Pete Carroll set the temperature in the room right away by the way that he responded to me in my panicking mode of, I'm so sorry, and you're here, and I can't help you, blah, blah, blah. He was awesome. And he basically set the temperature and said, listen, you're going to come in here. You're going to be comfortable around me. I'm not going to make this a big deal. I'm not going to turn the thermostat up to 100 and make you sweat and make it really hot or bring it all the way down and make you freeze in here. I'm going to keep the temperature in the, just the right place. And to me, I thought, wow, what a leadership lesson that I can now take with me or share with you or anybody else who reads the book and say, listen, when you're going about your daily life, we can either be the thermometer or we could be the, the, the thermostat. The thermostat sets the temperature in the room. The thermometer just takes the temperature, right? Yep. And we need to be thermostats and not thermometers as leaders. And it doesn't even matter where you are in your leadership world, whether you're a dad or a husband or whether you're a, a mom or a wife or whether you're in, in, you know, in a business or an entrepreneur or you're at school. And this goes for students too at school. There's a lot of thermometers, not a lot of thermostats exactly. when it comes to kids. A lot of them are following and not leading. Uh, but it doesn't matter where you are in your sphere of influence you can choose to be a thermostat. And that's what Pete Carroll did. Great lesson. Um, mm -hmm. So just like those stories, I mean, obviously spending as much time at ESPN as you did, you get a, a lot of pretty cool experiences in the sports world. Are there two or three that kind of jump out just as a, as a person like that was really cool. There's um, a lot of those. I mean, there's I'm days sure. where I'm just like, Holy cow, I get to do this. I'll give you a couple. So the first would probably be, um, the day, all right, so this is, this is random. This isn't even in the book, but I was, I was going to work one day. It was probably in the summer. Usually a lot of the great experiences happen in the summer because it was warmer. I was going to work. It was in the summer. And, uh, you know, you just, you never know what's going to take place when you go to a place like ESPN every day. You know, you might see a random celebrity walking in the halls. You might, uh, you know, I remember the day LeBron James was filming his commercial for this is sports center and you walk in the hall to go to the cafeteria and you look to your right and there's LeBron James in full uniform at ESPN. Like that's weird, but right. that's kind of what it is sometimes. Well, one day we were going to the cafeteria and I saw they were building a stage out in front of the cafeteria outside. And I'm like, what is going on? They must be building this for something. So we go in, we get our food and we come out and, uh, or they had already built a stage and we go in and we come out and there's the stage and there's, uh, maybe 20 employees that are outside and a band is playing on the stage. I'm like, Oh, that's nice. They brought in a band. <laughs> well, the band was Switchfoot, And I have no idea if you know who Switchfoot is, but I'm a huge Switchfoot fan. Yeah. They're pretty big. Yeah. And all of a sudden they just started playing like this six or seven song concert for 20 minutes outside on ESPN's green. And you know, the green is the open area 
that's basically in front of the cafeteria. Now, we don't get concerts too often. I mean, weird things happen at ESPN as it is just because you're around it. But right. that's that's got to be one of those where you just like, I'm getting paid right now to eat my lunch and watch Switchfoot in a concert that I would probably pay for to go to in anyways. Right. So that was pretty awesome. And uh, they were rocking it. And it was pretty cool. The other one I would say, and again, there's a, a hundred of them, but sure. it's got to be the day I spent with Daryl Strawberry. Like that is my favorite day at ESPN. Uh, because it was my childhood sports hero. So pick your guy, right? Tyler, who's your guy when you were a kid? Like your favorite athlete? Like if I could meet one person, who would it be? It was, uh, it was Bo Jackson, probably. Okay, Bo. So I actually got to meet Bo briefly, and that was pretty cool. But that wasn't spending a whole day with right. Bo Jackson. But I got to spend a whole day with Daryl Strawberry. Now, growing up as a kid in the 80s in upstate New York, the Mets and Daryl, was it for me like i was obsessed as a 13 year old kid wearing a daryl strawberry jersey collecting every baseball card he had i had notebooks filled with his stats before there was the internet that i would watch the games and keep his stats and read the newspaper every morning going right i mean it was just what it was as a kid i was a crazy sports kid and daryl was right at the top of the list and then i find out in 2010 or 2009 may of 2009 that daryl is coming to espn that I'm assigned to him, just like I was with Pete Carroll. I got to spend the day with him, walk him around, and put his show together, uh, you know, his schedule together for all the shows that he's going to be on. And it was everything you would hope it would be when you meet your hero. It's awesome. To the point where not only was he amazingly uh, generous and kind, but he was he was present in the situation. I was nobody, and I am nobody. But he, he made a point to ask me about my family, about what I do, where I grew up, like to get to know me, not just the ESPN dude that's taken me from show to show. Right. And we spent the whole day talking about faith, talking about family, talking about fatherhood, talking about relationships, talking about addiction, and talking about my dad. And that's yeah. a whole other story we could spend sure. an hour on with the first book that I wrote right. about the relationship with my father and Daryl took an interest so much so that he asked me for my number at the end of the day which blew me away then he actually followed up I got three or four calls in the next six months random out of nowhere from Daryl Strawberry imagine your phone rings and it's Daryl Strawberry on your right. phone and just checking in on me but really checking in on my dad how's your dad doing is he okay and you know for a while my dad was not okay he was struggling big time with his his addiction to alcohol and that bloomed into a friendship that to this day still continues. And it's so weird to say this to you, Tyler, cause it's weird for me even to like explain how crazy it is to have Daryl strawberry as a close friend when yeah. he was the guy, when I was a kid sure. and, uh, and he is a close friend. He wrote the forward to my first book. He um, wrote a great endorsement and is a big part of the second book. So yeah. Daryl Strawberry, I mean, come on. That's that's easily my best day at ESPN because it wasn't just a great day, but it changed my life. Yeah, it kept, kept going. <laughs> exactly. It was, <laughs> it was not a one-hit wonder, and it was like, nice to meet you. And by the way, if that was the end of the story, just that day, that's fine. Like, I got to hang out with Daryl Strawberry for a day. That happened with a lot of other people that I didn't get to spend time with after. Right. But Daryl's became something special. It kind of... 
leads into the next question a, a little bit. Um, yeah. Daryl was kind of a, a childhood hero, like you mentioned. Was there uh, another uh, athlete's personality that maybe, you know, when you're in that role, like maybe kind of like, oh, man, I got to spend a day with this person. <laughs> and then it. You mean from a negative perspective and then it turned yeah, out good? Yeah. Yeah. And kind of like, so man, they're just and not throwing anyone under the bus, but just maybe no, yeah. someone that you're just like, showed you a side of them that you don't get the chance to see in sports that. Uh, yeah. I got one for you. Um, and this is not a preconceived notion here. So three days after the giants won the Super Bowl in 2007, uh, they, it was the greatest upset at this point, I think, in Super Bowl history. Sure. It's one of the greatest upsets in sports history. The Giants, I think they were 9-7 and seven or 10-6 and six in the regular season, and they go on, run the table on the road and end up upsetting the undefeated New England Patriots. Well, this hero in that game was David Tyree. He had the helmet catch. Uh, he had a touchdown in that game and a very sort of an unsung hero for the Giants. Now, I'm going to tell you that to, sell, to tell you that I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. Ooh, so yeah. <laughs> if I'm a Cowboys fan, right, I know. I got a lot of people saying, ooh, when I say that. Okay. But I say that to tell you the story because the Giants are, I don't want to say the enemy, but they're the big rival, one of the big rivals, like the Eagles and the, and the Redskins, with the Cowboys. So the Giants had just won the Super Bowl, and I'm really torn here. I'm like, ah, okay. And I, I got to do my job too. You know, and there's been many times when I've had to put the smiley face on, be professional and not worry about fan love here. Right. You know, when, when something happens, you got you to gotta cover sports and you got to do it well. So we were covering the Giants victory. I mean, it was crazy. The fact that they won and we had a bunch of interviews, but we found out we were able to get David Tyree to come to Bristol three days after they won the Super Bowl. And that was a big big get for me just personally I was able to to book a guest with who was as hot and big of a name as there was just a couple days after they won uh, the Super Bowl in fact he spent the day with me on a Wednesday and then got on a plane and flew out to Los Angeles to be on the Ellen DeGeneres show the next day (laughs) so you could see like the demand that this band was having no doubt and I didn't have a preconceived notion on him other than that he played with the Giants but that's where my mind would go it's like uh gotta meet a giant and then you spend the day with them and he realized, A, he's a man of faith. He loves his family. He, he, he cares about things other than just football. But hearing him tell the story, he's certainly soaking it up and enjoying the fact that they just won a Super Bowl. But David Tyree was the real and is the real deal. I've got to see him a couple times. And, it's, and the preconceived notion was that he was a giant and I'm a cowboy in that sense, right? Yeah. But he was awesome. Great guy. Um, like I said, was, was, was just cordial as all could be. He was really good on, on air. He signed 50 autographs. And you're not really supposed to sign autographs at ESPN when you bring a guest through. They're just supposed to do their job. But sure. we live in Connecticut. We're, our show's in Connecticut. we got a lot of people who are giant fans that work at ESPN. You know, they all had covers of Sports Illustrated and footballs and everything else. And he signed them, took pictures with the footballs on, their hel- on his head, just like he made the catch. He was amazing. And that's the hardest part, I think, of this job, Tyler, for 17 years was becoming friends and cordial with people that you openly root against for many, many (laughs) years. Brian Dawkins is another one from the Eagles. I couldn't stand the Eagles, obviously, as a Cowboys fan, and they would hope that I wouldn't stand them and they can't stand the Cowboys. But Brian Dawkins is just the real deal. And we became buddies from working together. And 
again, another guy. You just kind of you put your allegiances aside and you re, you meet the person and you realize they're just people who happen yeah. to play on the wrong team. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Dawkins actually it was part of a a school and coaching staff here that I was working with that uh, his son went to when he played for the Broncos. And uh, in the spring, he joined one of our, our coaches' devotionals. So it was a pretty cool That's experience. Pretty awesome. but yeah, Dawkins yeah. uh, kind of came back to, to serve the coaches. Talk about a servant leader as well. So Absolutely. Um, yep. No doubt. But uh, so the other um, thing I, I love about the book, I, I know in the first book, it obviously, you know, it, it is kind of what makes the first book is sharing some of the vulnerabilities. And I think I've always yeah. believed that. Um, it's hard to be a great leader if you're not going to be vulnerable. You're going to have to put yourself out there. But uh, can you talk about what has allowed you maybe through your career in writing to become a little bit more vulnerable? And have you seen it translate into servant leadership as you've increasingly done so? Yeah, I think it's important to, to be vulnerable. I think as I got older, I became less concerned about what people think. Um, and that's, I think that's just a natural progression for a lot of people. Um, you know, when you're in high school, it's all you care about is what people think. Then you get to college and you start to pull away from that a little bit. Yeah. And you know, you're, there's no prejudgments from, from what you were like in high school when you get to college. So you become, you know, different friends with different people from all different walks. And, um, and then I think when you get out into the real world and, and start to, you know, work and have a job and, and meet different people from different, you know, spheres of influence or spheres of life, you, you, you realize that <clears throat> you still care about what people think. I still have this thing in me where I don't want people to be upset or mad at me. That's just me. I, wanna, I don't want to appease everybody, so I'm not compromising my convictions, but I don't like it when people are upset. Like I want to talk about it and figure out what the problem right. is and let's, let's work through it. Let me love you even if I disagree with you, right? right. Um, but as I got older, uh, I found that you know, and I'm not, I haven't always been the most sort of vulnerable guy where I just, you know, wear everything out in the open. But when I first shared about my dad, it was probably six years ago. And I wrote a blog. Remember when blogs were big? Yeah. And I wrote a blog and, and it was something to the effect of, I forgive you, dad. And I don't know why. I think when I decided to write that blog, I said, uh, I'm going to be op open and honest here and just see what happens. And if it's, if anything, it's going to help me get some feelings out. Yeah. It was probably five paragraphs. It wasn't long, but it was sort of this first time I had ever shared my thoughts uh, about my dad and kind of what he had been publicly. If anybody met me privately, they would know because I was pretty open there, but putting it out there was much different. And the reception was just, wow. I mean, so many people saying, thank you for sharing. I've been in a similar situation. And then I shared it at my church from the pulpit on a Sunday morning about a year wow. later. My pastor said, hey, you know, because I'm one of the leaders or elders at my church, and he said, hey, in that role, sometimes you're going to have to preach. It won't be too often, but you got to be ready. And this weekend is your weekend. So whatever you want to speak on, go for it. Now, at that point, I think I've maybe publicly spoken, you know, or did any public speaking maybe three times. Not, not a ton. So I was really nervous, especially – the fact that it was a Sunday morning from the pulpit, I feel like there's a, a great responsibility there. Sure. To step onto a stage at a church and make sure that what you're preaching isn't any kind of false pretense of what the Bible says. So you want to represent God well. And you also want to be mindful that you have a congregation there that could be coming in from all walks of life. And so I chose forgiveness. I shared the story of my dad 
and again, dozens of people, I would say, not a, not, we had probably a couple hundred people maybe at that time, but a lot of people came up and said, thank you for sharing because I have been through the same thing. That's vulnerability. And why be vulnerable? Because it might be able to help someone else who can then help someone else, who can then help someone else. It's a pay it forward thing. It really is. And with me, writing this book was the, the culmination of writing a blog, sharing a story, and realizing that there's other people who are struggling with forgiveness and being yeah. vulnerable was important to me. So I did that. My dad actually was the one who said, make sure when you write the book that you write it from as a vulnerable state as possible and that you paint as real and raw a picture as possible. And I said, well, that's going to make you the villain here. You're the bad guy. Yeah. And he said, that's okay. That's okay. Just be as open and honest as you can, because if it can help one person, you need to write it. And I was like, okay, dad. So that's what we went and did. And, uh, and when I wrote the second book, I really felt like it was important to continue to be vulnerable. Now, the second book is certainly not as deep and as raw as the first book. It just can't be. I mean, we're talking about forgiveness and an alcoholic father and a broken relationship. But there's moments where I personally have struggled in my leadership. And it's not, this book is not for me to paint a picture that I have it all figured out, right? Like I was the best leader and you need to follow me. Like, no, follow me as I follow Christ and look at him as the example as the great leader and look at all my flaws, look where I messed up, look where I just didn't get that uniform on my body properly that day or that <laughs> month or that year. And here's other people, again, I am third, right? Other people, the time I spent with them and the lessons that I learned from them and how they were great leaders. And so in the vulnerability, it's important to do that, but it's also important to point people back to Christ first for me and then others. And that's what I tried to do with both books, but really for the uniform of leadership, that was where the authenticity kind of reigned, you know, most true. Well, kudos to you, because I think it's just such an important thing, especially as males and around sports to let oh, people yeah. know it's okay to be vulnerable. And just like a lot of teenagers uh, are all kind of, just like you said, you know, they're all worrying about some of the same things. And I think well, just, they don't say it though. The teenagers are so concerned, including the one that lives in my house, that if I say something vulnerable or put it out there that I'm going to get made fun of or get viewed differently. And I think sometimes, man, I wish that teenagers would get it, would get it in their, in their heads that when they are open and share from a true vulnerable state, not just because they're open and sharing everything, it feels like, on social <laughs> right. media. But they're not really sharing their vulnerable, true self. They're sharing this sort of masked, painted up, highlights. fake self. Yeah, the highlights. And there's a lot of lowlights. And, and, and especially teens and young people are struggling with identity and depression and anxiety that doesn't need to be on these young people. It just doesn't. Um, but being vulnerable helps let you know that, hey, I'm not perfect. I don't have it figured out. Uh, maybe I'm not even normal, but what is normal? And, you know, the cry for help, unfortunately, sometimes it becomes too late. And I hope that uh, in reading a book like, like the Uniform of Leadership, that young people especially understand that they can be great leaders by being great servants and be as vulnerable as they can in caring about others. It's great stuff. The uh, kind of uh, 
not perfect. I'm not perfect. Uh, I think part if of this. You, if you have met a perfect person, um, Tyler, other than maybe Jesus, like introduce me because I'd love to meet them. Because right. I haven't met them and I'm in my 40s and I have right. never met a perfect person. And they're not writing a book and they're not starting a podcast. I don't know where they are. Uh, oh, that's it, man. But uh, this podcast is, you know, around growth and improvement and seeking kind of an elevated self. Um, yeah. As you think about that, how do you define success? How do I define success? That's a good question because I like asking that question on my podcast that I host too because (laughs) I think success is such a – the definition of success from a worldly perspective is achievement, accumulation, uh, title status, you know, sports terms, championships, Hall of Fame. That's success. Writing books. People will say to me, you're a successful person because you wrote two books and host a podcast and worked at ESPN. But that is such a worldly look at what success is. To me, success goes back to that word. It's about what are you doing for others? Yeah. That's success. And, uh, you know, sometimes that challenges me because not every day am I, do I feel like I'm doing something for others. I'm focused on my work and, and, you know, trying to put out the best podcast or, you know, write the best article or whatever it is, um, post the best, you know, social media post or anything like that. And, is that really doing anything for others? I think true success is the impact that you make on other people's lives. What are you doing for others? And, um, you know, when I think of true success in the eyes of the people in my life, it's those that have impacted me. You know, if I, if I never knew that Daryl Strawberry was a baseball player, an eight-time all-star, a four-time World Series champion, and my sports hero, but I just met him and talked to him as a person, to me, I'd look at him and say, that's true success because of the impact that he made on me, the impact that he's trying to make on others. And obviously things like what Daryl was able to accomplish and even to a much lesser extent myself, you know, those are all just used as tools or the platform to, to, to have maybe a voice that people will listen to. But man, if you're using that voice to toot your, your own horn, like that's not success. That's arrogance. Sure. That's pride. Success is what you do for others. It's the impact you make on other people's lives. I love it. Um, definitely do check out the podcast, Sports Spectrum. We'll have it uh, linked up to this podcast as well. It's great. I love the uh, the interviews you have on there. They're fantastic. Um, Thanks, man. The last question we like to, to ask here, if we went back in time, got in the old DeLorean, went and visited 16-year-old Jason, that's Daryl oh. Strawberry fan. Um, yes, that's what, very true what would be one truth from, from your journey becoming an author, the things you've gone through that you'd want to remind 16 year old Jason? Let's see. 16 year old Jason would have been going into his junior year of high school. Uh, he would have been really skinny, (laughs) uh, awkward, love sports. Um, getting ready to play varsity basketball. That 16 year old Jason broke his finger in September and then broke his ankle in December. So that was a tough year for 16 year old Jason. But I think what I would have told him, cause I, I was not, uh, you know, strong in my faith growing up. I didn't have a faith um, background. I wouldn't have been able to tell you anything about who Jesus was or the Bible or salvation or anything. But I would have probably said what you asked me earlier, maybe, hey, Jason, 16 year old Jason, you were created for a purpose and you don't understand that right now maybe 
but there is a plan in place for you to to do amazing things. And I, I think you always dream when you're a 16 year old kid of accomplishing and achieving, you know, amazing things. I think my dream at that point probably would have maybe still been hanging on to playing professional sports, but understanding that maybe broadcasting uh, was where I was going to go next and do sports. And I was able to achieve that, thankfully, going to ESPN. But I would have said, you know, you were created for a purpose and really truly discover what that purpose is. And it's not just to achieve, but it's to impact. It's to help and serve others. It's to be um, faithful, to be sold out for, for the gospel. And that would have not made sense to 16-year-old Jason at all. Uh, but I would have focused on that. And I, I, just a couple small things I would have said. A, uh, become a better writer because I hated writing when I was younger and I still don't enjoy it. But if I, if I think if I had taken it on earlier, I would have be, I would be a better writer than I am right now because I would have taken it more seriously. Uh, I would have also said to don't let sports become your God. And I mean, that wasn't just 16 year old Jason, that was 26 year old Jason. And sometimes even 36 year old Jason, not, not as much when I got into my thirties, but sports was a God. I mean, it was an idol. It was, it was an identity uh, for me. And, you know, I would have said to 16 year old Jason, just be careful not to make sports your God. And I would have looked at my current self and said, you're crazy. And I was like, trust me, it will become a God of yours. And you don't want that because there's only one God and it's certainly not sports.